This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the Faculty Innovation Center of the University of Texas at Austin. Oh man, I was just talking to someone uh, two hours ago from Lipstorm Cancer Institute that I used to see all the time in person and now like it's the first time I've seen them on Zoom in like six months. It's like, this is, these are all the conversations that are like fun and I most miss. So yeah. I got your invite. I was like, two people I miss dearly. I'd love to spend time talking about it. So. <laughs> So that'll work? Yeah, my only my only thing is I have like the pretty close to that five o'clock stop time just to make sure the kids don't light the house on fire downstairs. So uh-huh. who we are as people shapes who we are as teachers. About how our lived experience informs our teaching. Uh, we can be flexible and adapt and change this. You're you're free to do that. We don't have to have it perfect. We are about getting folks together from all walks of teaching life. The key phrase you, you suggest there is it, it has to be done collectively. We have so much to learn from the other side of campus. <laughs> From the University of Texas at Austin, this is The Other Side of Canvas. Well, hello. I am Dixie Stamforth, a professor of instruction in the Department of Kinesiology and Health Education. And hello, everybody. I'm Jen Moon, an associate professor of instruction in the College of Natural Sciences. We are delighted to have Dr. Mike Mackert here with us today. A little bit about him. He is the director of the University of Texas at Austin Center for Health Communication and professor in the Stan Richards School of Advertising and Public Relations in the Department of Population Health. That is a long title. (laughs) His research focuses primarily on the strategies that can be used in traditional and new digital media to provide effective health communication to low health literate audiences. And to expand on that just a little bit, Mike leads projects on a variety of public health issues, including tobacco cessation, opioid overdose prevention, and men's role in prenatal health. They generate evidence-based health communication strategies for partners and contribute to health communication scholarship. Mike, welcome. We are so glad that you could join us today for this conversation. We couldn't be more excited to be here. Well, we thought, Mike, we might start with your story, which I love because it is so nonlinear. And I think that it would be really fun for our listeners to hear how you ended up in a department of advertising at UT Austin, all the way from Michigan. Calling it nonlinear might be underselling it, though, perhaps. (laughs) You know, I went to Michigan State for, I got my BS in chemistry because I had a wonderfully inspirational high school chemistry teacher and a amazing high school ice hockey coach. And he went to Michigan State and I picked Michigan State because it had an ice rink and pre-bend. And it was about my junior year. I was like, I really liked the kind of the intellectual problem solving of chemistry, but I didn't see it as a, a career I wanted to pursue. And so I had a number of friends on campus who were doing work in communication and I started taking electives and was like, oh, this is, this is the kind of stuff I get really excited about. And so I had a conversation with my parents where I explained I was going to go to grad school, which was not a surprise. And then I said I'm in communication and that part was a surprise. A lot of people get into health communication on purpose because they want to use their interest in communication to help people lead healthier lives and make healthier decisions and all those kinds of things. I fell into that part very much by accident. My advisor studied telemedicine and she happened to pick my application out of the pool and that's the thing I got to work on as a you know, master's and then PhD student on research projects. And when uh, advertising here at UT had a job posting, it just said health communication. And the dean at the time was building out kind of faculty with health comm expertise. 
And I didn't know anything about advertising. I never studied advertising, never studied it. I was doing this telemedicine research and I, I came down and figured, you know, that's a school I would like to work at in a city I'd love to live in and just let's just go for it and see what happens. And they ended up picking me for the job. It's like the best fortune accident of my career because the things that people in advertising study and are interested in and the role of persuasion and all these things, that was really new and novel to me with my background in telemedicine and sort of health communication from more of an education framework. And so it really helped me take things I already knew and had studied and add all this cool creativity and persuasion, things that advertisers care about. And it made my research better. I got to teach new things that were new to me and, and exciting. And so that's kind of how I got to where I am right now. That's amazing. It makes me think how often we've heard stories where people just sort of follow their nose and end up having really rewarding careers. And I think it's so important to think about that when you're talking to students and they're like, I'm going to be a doctor. I want to be a doctor since I'm three. So I'm going to go to med school. I'm going to be a doctor. And you always kind of want to say, well, you know, you should just kind of roll with it. But I could also appreciate as in your 20s, when you're in the rolling with it stage, <laughs> it is so unnerving not to know what you're going to do in the next two years. So, but it always ends up working out. Really interesting to hear your story. Chemistry of all things. You know, it's a, it's a weird career path, but uh you know, I always I always do try to share it with students or if I'm guest lecturing, you know, a lot of the students at UT who find their way to health communication classes are often pre-health profession and they're currently majoring in things like that's the career path they see themselves on. And I always kind of share the, you know, I have this BS in chemistry. I teach an honor seminar for CNS every year on HealthCom. And it's like, oh, like this is the program I was in basically when I was at Michigan State and trying to just open their eyes a little bit to like, there's a lot of things that your adventures at UT and any university are gonna maybe take you to. And so following your nose, I think is a nice way to talk about it and just sort of see where your interests go. And it might not be the thing you, you showed up thinking you were gonna be interested in. It is, it's a great picture, Jen, and encourages all of us, I think, to communicate with our students that you, nothing is wasted. Enter into it fully and, and really get all you can out of it because down the road, who knows where that nose might lead you and you're going to be able to use that. Yeah. And don't be beholden to some decision you made when you were five. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think there's also the sense that we can't change our minds because even I think 20 year olds feel like it's too late for me to change my mind in terms of my career, which seems absurd at our stage in the game now. But I think that is the mindset that many of them have. I majored in chemistry. I can't possibly do anything else. You know, that kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. So stories like that, Mike, are so powerful. So thanks for sharing. As we're in a pandemic and you're a health communications person, I am dying to ask you this question. So, so I'm thinking about how have you seen, what has been your experience and how you see health communication working in these times in our nation, in our city, it's been really interesting. So in, you know, March, as campus was shutting down, I got a lot of emails from different, like, what's the Center for Health Communication going to do? What are, you know, what's, what's all the things? And we have an amazingly talented staff team, but they're all working on these different funded projects. And I think we settled really quickly on the answer. What we could offer wasn't to produce the 7 millionth wash your hands campaign. What we thought we could offer something that would be helpful one of the first things we did was we started a thread on Twitter where what we were doing was finding messages that we really liked that other people had prepared. And then we were explaining the thread. Oh, we really like this one. 
because it looks like a really smart use of this health communication theory that we know from lots of evidence, like why this probably is a good approach and trying to help raise up the really good stuff. And the fact that COVID is novel and it's new and we're learning about it and recommendations might change, like that part has been really hard. And even people who are doing everything perfectly, you know, two months later, it might look like they made a mistake, but it's more like, oh, we learned something new. Like maybe you don't have to use bleach wipes on all your groceries or whatever. But I mean, the CDC has this crisis and emergency risk communication manual that hasn't been updated for years. Like the document is the document and everything in there applies to now. And so a lot of our work, and I think it highlights the value of basic science and evidence over time is there's things that we already knew about effective health communication in a situation like this. Like we really didn't need to reinvent the wheel. It was more figuring out smart ways to help people know what is most likely to work and then put that evidence base kind of into practice and use it and try and be as consistent as possible. And so Mike, your brand is really evidence-based health communication. How do you deal with communicating in a time when when the evidence isn't really there yet and it's changing, it seems like, on an almost daily basis, what we know and, and how it's being applied? One of the things that we think about a lot, I know I had the opportunity to do some work. We had a chance to run focus groups with faculty, staff, students, and parents at UT in the summer to help think about how UT could be communicating about COVID and as a plan to head to the fall not knowing at the time what COVID was going to be like in the fall. I mean, we just, we didn't know. And so trying to just understand what was going on. And one of the things that really came out through those conversations, which I think is the case here is empathy is so important to good communication and being willing to acknowledge there are things about this situation we don't know. And we know that is very frustrating for you as the person hearing the, like here, we're trying to tell you, like no one likes ambiguity. And I think that a part of the key and the people who were doing it really well were acknowledging the fact they were doing the best they could with the at times limited knowledge we had at the time. And I think that went a long way to helping people, but it was done well and people were in a frame of mind where they could listen. It was helping people grasp like what we could know and what we still just don't know. And that's just being transparent and honest is a really important part of any good communication. And this will put you on the spot a little bit. Did you have a favorite? Can you think of one that still sticks in your mind as this was so awesome? Man, that's a good question. One of the things, I guess, that because, you know, part of what we were doing was thinking about, you know, we know from lots of research that targeted and tailored communication is better than just one big broad thing that's going to be aimed at everyone. And so there was a campaign out of, I think it was Washington, D.C., that was really focused on pregnant women. And it had some, some like facts and stuff about COVID. 99% of it would have applied to anyone. But the fact that they took the time to focus it on pregnant moms meant it was probably more likely to resonate and catch the pregnant moms who might see that. And we actually took that exact material and flipped it and designed it and helped it match some of the work we do about getting dads involved in prenatal health. Most of the content was there for anyone. But again, it's like, hey, expectant father, here's some information for you. And that was also a key thing we talk a lot about in my classes. And like, you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Like someone has done the thing really well. How do you adjust it or adopt it to make it work for you rather than Mm -hmm. like, we have to start this whole thing over from scratch. Like that there's just, there was, there's no time for that, but it's also just, there's better ways to spend our time and energy than that. Yeah. And I wonder, is that sort of the takeaway? I mean, thinking about what this experience, this incredible 
rush to get messaging out, people are clamoring, you know, tell us what we're supposed to do is to kind of think about what's our playbook in response to something like this. I mean, we've never really as a country, I guess, during the flu of 19, whatever, 19, (laughs) but, but in terms of in this digital age had to, and we're expected to respond in such a way, what are the takeaways that we can use moving forward? I think the biggest thing, you know, everyone was like, oh, there's everyone saying different things. Well, in our country, there is no way with 50 states and I mean, however many county and local and city health departments, like there were so many people who all felt a burning need to push out messages, which is understandable and the right thing to do. I think what, if I could hope for something better the next time, it would be a system to better share messages among all those folks who are creating, because for all we know, there's some you know, local health department in Vermont that created the world's best social distancing materials. Mm-hmm. And how do we help that get out to everyone in the country? And then here in Texas, we're like, oh, that's 90% right for us, but we have to make it work a little bit more for Texas. That system and way of helping the best messages spread quickly would be extremely helpful, I think, as we plan ahead for the next one, as much as none of us want to think about <laughs> anything like this again in the future. Yes, please. No next one, if we can. Well, we want to be sure, Mike, that we have plenty of time to talk about what it seems like you're most excited about right now, which is your online education initiative. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that, because it seems like a pretty exciting new path for you and your team. But maybe first tell us a little bit about your team and the center so that we have a little background for who you are and why evidence-based healthcom is your brand. So. Our center is, as far as we know, the only academic center in the country that is jointly shared between a college of communication and a medical school. So we're really formally part of both the Moody College of Communication and Dell Medical School. And over the last almost four years, our center has grown from three staff to now 17. And I often tell outsiders that in some ways we operate like a very highly qualified health advertising agency within UT, because we have four graphic designers and a copywriter and a web developer. And then that team is surrounded by people with public health experience or general communication training. And then we kind of implement evidence-based health communication campaigns for the Texas Department of State Health Services or MD Anderson or UT System. And we get to do really cool research along the way where we need to to fill gaps in our knowledge from where we don't already have a good answer from some existing evidence or theory. And on the education side, for years, we've been running what we call our Health Communication Leadership Institute. And it's a three-day in-person summer event where sort of mid-career professionals from around the country fly to Austin, and we have a chance to teach them about health communication and leadership. And so it's people from the CDC, state health departments, hospital systems, insurance companies, all over. And one of the bits of magic of that event the last bunch of years is a lot of our really good faculty who can take their academic research and theories we know from health communication and explain to people doing it day-to-day as professionals why their research matters. So Dr. Dina Kemp in advertising is an expert on emotion, persuasion, and health calm. And so she can talk about different ways of thinking about emotions in messaging around health. And so what's the difference between a fear appeal and a disgust appeal and, you know, all these little fine-grained differences and the way they can work or not. 
And so what we're about to embark on, two new staff started on two weeks ago. So we're in the very early days of putting this, a lot of years of planning into practice and, and action, is how to take what we do in three days in person with 50, 55 people in a room together and convert that into one hour asynchronous online education. Because the in-person event, part of the magic is it's like 55 people and they get to hang out and network and have fun together. Mm. But we never wanted that event to get bigger than 50 or 55 people. So if we want to make educational impact at scale, doing something online, async, or like this kind of model feels like a really good fit for what we want to do. And now the challenge and the thing to think through is how do we take what we've gotten good at in our residential classes within UT where we're teaching health communication to undergraduates and graduate students and we're good at teaching it in person to professionals and make that work for lots and lots of people online. So what are some of the differences as you think about that transition? What are some areas that you and your team are focusing on? Some of the things that I think make our in-person classes and events work is a lot of things that I think people listen to this podcast try to do a lot all the time in their classes, which is, you know, someone's talking for 10 minutes and then like, let's let the students work for 20 minutes on a problem. And then we'll talk through some of their solutions and which were really good and why, and where did one king get stuck and how can different students help each other build on their good ideas? Speaking for myself, like I find that more challenging to do online synchronously on Zoom as we shifted, you know, since the spring. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is, I was like, oh, how does this all work uh, on Zoom now? Uh-huh. And I think imagining how do you pull that off in a way that still works really well when it's asynchronous and people are going to be taking this on on their lunch hours and like all the ways we imagine that people are going to want to learn from us. Some of the interactivity with the faculty, with other learners, that's not going to be there in the same way. And so that feels like a big, important ingredient of what works well in what we already align in this kind of new program and new system. I was thinking about how we could apply that then, like all these things that you've learned. I mean, not to put any more burden on what you're <laughs> doing, but I was just thinking like, these are really important takeaways that we could apply just to general remote teaching and remote learning. So I'm interested in what you guys pull from this. Yeah, what are some of your top takeaways? One of the things, and this is more from thinking about what we've learned from teaching undergrads in the classroom, at least speaking for myself and teaching the professionals, is that remembering that most people we're teaching just in general, they aren't PhD students, they don't want to be professors. And so thinking about what the student interest is. And so I talk about health communication theories in my undergraduate classes. And I always sort of imagine students' eyes about to roll into the back of their head when I'm like, let's talk about theory. But what I, through a bunch of iterations, gotten to is explaining theories are tools to help you do better work, more efficiently, more consistently. You don't have to argue about the 14th moderating variable and some health comm theory to be in this class. Like I'm giving you a toolbox of some things you can use to solve a problem. And in the course, so every team on a project, they all have to, they have to use a theory or their grade will not be great. But they watch from see each other present like, oh, like that team used the health belief model and this other team used the theory plan behavior and they both got to good answers. And so also helping them understand there isn't like only one tool for a lot of the jobs kind of health come jobs that they're thinking about solving in their work. It's about just that process of thinking about it. Like we talk a lot about like, think like a CHC or think like a health comm person in the same way that I've heard people in, you know, chemistry talk about, we want to teach people to think like a chemist. And so that's a, a big part of, I think my personal evolution, thinking about 
the what we want to teach is like, which I've stolen 100% from people I heard being like, think like a chemist. It's like, oh, I technically hopefully did that for my time as a chemistry student. But thinking about applying that lens to our health come education has, I think, made it easier to think through different kinds of learners and what they probably want from us and kind of that same kind of student-centered learning design. And in terms of the student-centered learning, do you have any insights for us or things that maybe you all are thinking through about the asynchronous environment? We did a kind of a pilot test of a one-hour module as a part of thinking this through. And it was like me in my office teaching a, a kind of a little chunk of one of my classes just to get a feel for it. And this is two years ago. So this wasn't when everyone was already tired of watching people talk on Zoom, <laughs> but just understanding like no one wants to listen to anyone talk for 50 minutes in a row with PowerPoint slides going by. And so what's 10 minutes of covering this? And then can you give them a little writing assignment that they can do for 10 minutes? And then the next segment of you doing the teaching might be like, okay, let's reflect. Like I want you to like reflect on what you just did and then walking through one example of what it might look like. So trying to capture a little bit of that here learning almost is like taking examples that I've seen actual people produce in an in-person, a, you know, synchronous sort of environment and trying to sneak that stuff in. So it's like a person who's a lot like you has probably produced this. This might be exactly what you produced. It might be really different. So trying to, where we can use examples of what people in the asynchronous class would be asked to produce to get some of that reflection going. Because I think that idea of like, I want to learn from seeing how other people work with the same problem, that feels like a very consistent thing that we can find ways to carry over. Just how we do it is the part that we have a lot of thinking to do on. And it makes me think that people don't want to sit in person in a 50-minute class listening to someone talk and do PowerPoint slides either. (laughs) So I mean, the whole process is a little, and it's really helped me because I did try to be somewhat interactive when I taught in person, but I was always too scared to do this flip model that you're describing where you're doing a little bit of content in short videos with like a, maybe a quiz or something, you know, automated thing. And then use the class time to like go through examples and go through, here's a problem that we're going to, you're going to ask to do outside of class and let's walk through it and have it be very applied. Is it much mm-hmm. applied? So I'm really focused now on doing that for my classes. And I teach genetics for some context. I feel like, I felt like it's made a huge difference to the point where two years ago, I was terrified to flip my course because it seemed like a ton of work and I wasn't even sure if it's going to work. Now that I've been forced to, I can't go back. I so much more enjoy using our time together in some productive application practice way. That's so cool. I can only imagine how many people at UT made changes to their classes because they had to. And now when we eventually get back to teaching in person, the way we, everyone would probably rather be teaching in person, but like that shift back is like, oh, how do I take all this new stuff that I learned Mm -hmm. by accident or because I was forced to, and now taking that back into the in-person, like I think in-person teaching is going to be better as a result of a lot of forced innovation and rethinking and, and it's going to improve what people are doing in the classroom in person when we get back there for sure. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I love hearing this from, from both of you all. I am interested though in that sense of community building because Jen mentioned it, Mike, you alluded to it as well. It's a huge part of what I try to do in my classes. Do you have any thoughts or insights in terms of that asynchronous model? How to do that, how to try to to facilitate that. So to be clear, we're two weeks into really kind of <laughs> putting some of these plans into action. You know, when we do the in-person leadership institute in the summers, 
it was the third year. We were like, oh, we should definitely create a LinkedIn group for alumni of this program so that then they have the ability to say, oh, you've also been through this thing in Austin with these really great faculty and people teaching this cool stuff to help them build out their professional network. And actually, probably two years ago or so, a bunch of alumni from different companies ended up doing a session about health communication and leadership inspired by different things they'd all taken away from our event. So it was sort of a, a panel at a conference that we didn't organize about things they got excited about from being with us in Austin. And so I think that things like that are going to be really important for the asynchronous. So you know you're not just like the one person doing this. Mm-hmm. It's ways to help them see that there are technically other people doing this, even if they're taking other classes or the same class at not the same time, but feel like kind of trying to find ways to have that sense of like, there's a community of learning going on, even if we're not sitting in a room together. And, you know, I'm thinking also about our community of faculty, you know, so we're all part of the Provost Teaching Fellows and it's been a faculty learning community here at UT for several years. And you were one of the founding members of that organization. So, Tell us a little bit about how this all got started and in your mind, how you've seen it sort of change and develop in the last, I think it's been eight years. It's something like, I mean, it's been a long, like, I, I can't pop open my CV and look how long ago that was. No, it's um, fine. I think it's ish. Yeah, I, <laughs> sorry. I met, I met emotionally, I can't do it. Not that I can't do oh, it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was really fortunate because I was one of the first folks brought in as like a fellow who would get to do a project. And so I still remember getting this email. It was like, two o'clock in the morning. It was like, congratulations, you're a Provost Teaching Fellow and here's some resources to improve teaching and learning at UT. No one at a university ever just hands you money. And so it seemed like a really weird email scam of some kind. And, you know, then I got like some other follow-up and was like, oh, this sounds really exciting. And I, I, one of the things I've loved about the program in general is almost everyone who shows up has been like, I found my people on campus. Oh, like, I, like there's, yeah. there's, there's people <laughs> who are as excited about teaching innovation, all the things like all over the university, met so many new people and made so many new friends through this, that it's really been a transformational way of understanding what UT can do and how many great people are spread across this campus who I would never have met through my research, but I met because of teaching things. And I guess the thing that has been most consistent that I've loved like as the program has continued and just seeing new cohorts of people go through is it is one of the most energetic groups of people on campus. Like it's people who are so excited about making teaching and learning better at UT for faculty, for students and thinking about change at scale. And so, you know, organizing ways that faculty can watch other faculty teach and get together and talk and have coffee about that. You know, it's how do you get not just the hundred people who show up to an event about teaching to get excited about teaching. But like this group, I think makes a really conscious and great efforts to kind of expand that circle and get more people excited about teaching and learning at UT, which I think makes happier faculty and better faculty and students who can learn better. And it's just, it's one of the best things going at UT. And so uh, I'm always proud of what I was able to do and build through the program. The, the program I built my first two years is now a permanent educational program within our Center for Health Communication, because it's all about how do you teach grad students how to pursue grant funding? And so every year we get to give funds to grad students who go through the program. And that started my first year in the program in the Pro Teaching Fellows. That's fantastic. And I think that the community that's built is also, you're talking about how what the benefit is to faculty, the university gets all this new innovative 
ideas that in your case, and hopefully in many cases, turn into like a permanent component of a department or a program. We've all talked about how we've been very rewarded with the community. And you were, I should mention, you were my mentor in Provost Teaching Fellows <laughs> my, first, my first two years. So that's a good connection there too. You know, we talk about student community, but having faculty also have a community around teaching is something that is unusual and allows you to kind of get out of your own head and feel like you're part of something bigger. And it's very difficult to have, especially if you're so focused on your own research, your own classes, whatever, you come in, you do your work, you go home and very little time to talk to someone from fine arts if you are in college natural sciences. Yeah. And it's such an amazing opportunity as well to see the synergy across the disciplines that good teaching, I learned from you chemists and you fine arts people, I, I learned so much across the disciplines that I can take back and apply myself. And you don't often see a multidisciplinary group like this. I've not seen anything like it. I know from having watched and been part of that you know, peer observation and going to watch people, sometimes if you're watching a really great teacher teach, but you really have no idea what they're talking about, it's easier to focus on the teaching part of what they're doing mm-hmm. and the content part of what they're doing. Yes. And, you know, some of the best examples and little tips and tricks and techniques, it was from watching social work faculty teach or a biology faculty member teach. It's like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but that is a technique of teaching I'm going to steal and adopt back into my classes. Oh, can it's, you give I, us an example, Mike? Can you remember one? Yeah, there was a a social work professor who had, I've never had a class where I did kind of low stakes quizzes to see if students were reading or not to prepare for class. You know, I show up for the day of class and she's like, okay, who's going to roll the dice today? And then she kind of took a little aside, like took the the minute to explain to the faculty there for the day that every day in class, there was a student who would roll the dice. And if it came up evens, they did a quiz. And if it came up odds, they didn't. And so the students then are like, oh, well, it's so-and-so because the last three times she rolled the dice, we didn't have to take a quiz. So like they had like the hot <laughs> hand in the class and it was like a fun moment. And I think the student got the odd or whatever that day and they didn't have to take a quiz again. And so everyone celebrates. And it was really a fun way, I think, of making this like a quiz, which even if it's low stakes, can be stressful to students. Mm-hmm. She kind of had this little bit of fun moment around it every time. And afterwards, we went out for coffee and she's like, you know, statistically, there's like no way they aren't going to take enough quizzes for me to get like the part of the grade <laughs> they need. But it just made it really fun. And so if I ever have to do kind of that low stakes quiz in a course that I'm teaching, I am 100% going to steal that because it was such a smart way of doing that little bit of her class every single day. Love it. That is so cool. And I think both Jen and I have also been in classes like that and just one little thing and you think that's brilliant just brilliant. And then you see how you can fold it into your own teaching. So yeah, we're very fortunate to have found a tribe of people who are passionate about teaching as we are. So Mike, wondering if there's anything else that you would like to share with us. It's funny calling this the other side of campus because Modi and Delmed (laughs) could literally not be further apart Uh on our campus. And so as I, you know, used to run back and forth between my two academic homes, Health communication is a field I literally can't do without people who know the health part of whatever project we're working on. And so for every project, the colleagues in pharmacy and nursing and medicine and health educate, like they're just all over campus who know that. Like I literally can't do my job without talking to those folks. But some of my best friends on campus and mentors and finding people who aren't part of your own department or school 
can be so helpful. Be like, oh, that's how your school does that. That sounds a lot better. I got to tell, you know, it's like, that's really helpful. Just the willingness to get out of our own little bubble. Any way you can find do that. It's, I think there's so many groups and organizations and things going on at UT that are opportunities to go outside your home department for anyone I work with. I, it's like one of the number one things I try when junior faculty show up is like trying to help them figure out where some of their other friends on campus might be just to get out of your little bubble and you're going to learn a lot more and meet new people who think about things new ways. And it's just such an important part of having fun at UT and any university, I'm sure. Uh It's been a huge part of what I love about being here. That's very cool. So Mike, if I were a junior faculty member and I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, that sounds like a great idea. Any suggestions for how they might do that? Any ways to open doors more easily or to connect with people? My first year or two, and again, it's partly because I had to, but you know, I showed up here and I took very much took advantage of like, I'm brand new and I need to meet people and I am not shy. And so I emailed so many nursing faculty, especially my first year. It was like, hey, you study type two diabetes. You study whatever it is that you study. My research interest in health communication could play a supporting role in what you're doing. I worked really hard to find more senior people and what I wanted to do was learn the ropes of UT and learn from people who were much further along in their careers. And I could learn how to write grants and do all the things I wanted to learn how to do too. And so that willingness to sort of continue to be a student and lean into it a little bit to kind of make the connections. I mean, I don't think there's anything faculty get more excited about than some bright PhD student emailing them like, I want to talk or some undergrad who has a cool problem they want to work on. I have the exact same reaction when I get an email from any faculty member at UT who is interested and wants to talk about getting to work together. Like that's a fun thing and not underestimating or assuming people are too busy or all those kinds of things. Like just go for it. Like the work that you're doing is send an email or knock on someone's door and they're not going to answer. Like, okay, move on. There's so many bright, talented people at this university. Just be willing to kind of go exploring and drop people line and play up that you're new and you're trying to make new friends. I love it. So your advice is be brave, be brave people. Yes. Be brave. Mm -hmm. And find mentor, you know, what you're talking about in some respect is how you might define a sort of mentoring network Mm -hmm. of people, not only collaborators, but people that you can learn from in all different aspects. You know, there's never, as I understand mentoring now, more sophisticatedly, is there's not like one person that will answer all of your things, like an old wise person on a hill, but rather for different types of things, you're going to need to talk to different people with different Mm -hmm. experiences. And so creating that sort of mentoring network that can support you as you develop your own ideas and scholarship. And and you don't even know who's going to turn into a mentor. I mean, I met Mary Steinhardt the year I got to UT. We both got a pilot grant from the School of Nursing Shipper Center. And so we went through their program together. And so we got to learn about grant, right? All the things that that program put together for us. And like to this day, Mary is this great mentor. And if I'm stuck on something or trying to think through something, like she's one of the people on campus I can call on. And I, I met her by accident because we happened to get a grant the same year, you know, from a program on campus. Sometimes you find the mentors without even actively looking for them, but just being open and kind of taking the time to be a generous colleague I think is really helpful because that's how you build the relationships and find the people you really want to talk to and spend time with over time and can support you and you can support them too. That's a beautiful thought, Mike, because I think what you just said describes you, that you're generous and you're willing to work with people and invest in others. And we are so delighted to get a chance to chat with you today and have you share a little bit of your story and your journey with us. I'm so happy to be here. I I listen to a lot of podcasts and I listen to them all in double speed. So I've been listening to all these and it's always funny, especially with people I know in real life. 
to then hear them at double speed uh, is always a, a, an interesting experience. So that's a scary uh, thought. I, I, now you can listen to yourself at double speed. I know. <laughs> oh, I, I'm not sure I can do that. Um, but it, 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 like, I really love this show is so cool, and it's a, another neat way of kind of doing that kind of outreach and getting people excited about teaching UT. So I love the work of this podcast and that you were doing. I'm really kind of proud and excited to have been a guest. Okay, so should we do a wrap up? No. Are you ready for this very no. dive question? <laughs> no. <laughs> All I have is tea. Okay, well, I'm done. I've been fake sipping my coffee. I keep expecting there's coffee in there and I keep forgetting there isn't. Mike is always such a great person to talk to and so insightful and, and thoughtful about a lot of things and, and is always so involved in projects that have such high impact. So I'm just always excited to hear what he's into. What did you take away? What is, was there a moment in our conversation where you were like, oh. Yeah, you know, I feel the same way about Mike. And so I think there were a lot of gems. You know, I love his focus on the community aspect and the importance of really being able to connect across disciplines, being willing to ask questions, and to reach out and talk with people and to learn and to grow. I mean, what he was really describing was what we want for our students. And he's modeling it for mm-hmm. us. He's modeling it for his students and for, for the people who work with him at the center. And I think really for me, because I do know Mike well, I just love seeing his excitement. It never wanes. He's always ready to meet somebody new and synergize and connect and collaborate. And it just lights him up. And so it lights me up as well. It lights everyone up that's around him. I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And I I also really appreciated hearing his very student-centered approach and how that was kind of coming out of his own work in health communications. I mean, by their discipline, they have to think about the audience that they're targeting and how to make an inroad there and how to grab their attention. And so I just always have this feeling that whatever he tells me is going to be super useful for the classroom because basically that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to communicate. That's true. It's all about communication. Yeah. So I really, I, you know, I did appreciate hearing his, how he thinks about his classroom as being very student-centered. And I try to do that too, but I learn a lot from him. Me as well. Thanks, Dixie. That was so much fun. Thanks, Jen. It was a blast. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information and to provide feedback, please visit us online at texasptf.org. Thank you.